Hello and welcome to the Curious Body Podcast. I'm your host, Nyana B. We're here today in our second interview with Sri Acharya. If you've heard my interview previously, I've introduced Sri Acharya as a Dharma teacher who works tirelessly to spread the message of ancient Vedic literature and sutras throughout the world for the advancement of humankind on a true spiritual level. So he's very unapologetic and he's not afraid to have backbone in what he knows to be the truth about the nature of God, reality, and the way to get there. So I hope you enjoy our conversation about the current state of the world in relation to the Vedas and also gods, goddesses, devas, dakinis, and the ego. Enjoy. Without further ado, I present my friend Sri Acharya. I would like to progress from some questions regarding the Vedas and what they say and then go on through from there. Sure, that sounds very good, absolutely. I'm wondering if the Vedic literature has predicted the specific world and time material situation that we're in, such as our current political dramas and our economic habits. This could be regarding our wars, the rise of capitalism, increasing interest in technology and artificial intelligence, etc. And along the same lines, a follow-up question would be, if we're looking at human history, though the cultural contexts are indeed different, there still seems to be some force that keeps our consciousness from cutting through the material delusions and systems that we're in. What is this force exactly that keeps these structures operating from ancient times up until the present day? Very good. Well, yeah, this is a very, very important uh, several important questions, actually, and I like questions like this. I like all questions, philosoph overtly philosophical ones, but then questions that also have to deal very practically with our day and age and what exactly is is going on today, etc. Um, yeah, maybe we'll split up the answer into uh, two sections, and you may have to maybe repeat the second part of your question a little bit later. But first, dealing with what the Vedic scriptures actually have to say about our era. Um, there is quite a bit, actually, that the Vedic scriptures speak about regarding uh, this age, very specifically what is called the Kali Yuga. In fact, indeed, this, the Vedic scriptures even have a name for our age. It's called the Kali Yuga, sometimes meaning uh, the Iron Age, sometimes meaning the Age of Conflict, I prefer the latter translation, the age of conflict, for a variety of reasons. But yes, throughout the scriptures, it talks about our age. It talks in in quite a bit of depth, not as far as names. You know, it doesn't name historical figures so much. Uh, you know, it doesn't talk about things that were on the news yesterday. Not to that specific a degree. I mean, that would be that would be very difficult. That would end up being a lot of writing <laughs> if it gave you if it gave us a day by day blow of what's happening. But it does talk in a lot of specificity <clears throat> about how this age specifically will indeed be extremely challenging and for everyone, really, but especially for individuals who are more spiritually and let's say intellectually inclined people who are more, let's say, spiritually sensitive uh, to what's happening around them. It will be a, an extremely challenging age. And 
as far as where in the scriptures this is discussed, quite a few places actually. In fact, I can tell you a few of them. Specifically in the Mahabharata, there is a very large section where it goes detail after detail after detail explaining our age. Also in an entire book, a Purana called Bhavishya Purana, uh, which is translated literally as the Purana of uh, things to be. Purana, one could say, means kind of like history, a history book. So the Bhavishya Purana is history of the future. <laughs> That's how you could translate this book. So it's a fascinating book talking about uh, our age, even though the book itself was written thousands of years ago. And again, it's quite accurate. Also, in most, if not all of the other Puranas, there are extensive writings talking about our age. And to summarize it just very, very briefly, yes, this is a terrible age, uh, regardless of what many people in their short-sightedness in their lack of historical context may think. Of course, we have the idea of progress that, oh, yes, if you go back, uh, <laughs> I'm exaggerating just to be funny. If you go back, oh, 100 years, people were living in caves. People were savages. Yeah, there's this progressive idea of history, which, uh, you know, anyone who does even the smallest bit of their own historical research sees as nonsense. Uh, people in ancient times were extremely advanced in every way, anything you can think of from the, the composition of their city structures, to their literature, to their philosophy, to their practices, to their aesthetics, to their medicine, to their sciences, their astronomy, their astrology, and on and on and on. We can mention uh, hundreds of other things. Uh, the ancients were quite advanced. Um, so the truth of the matter is, uh, today, this day and age, modernity, is considered to be an extremely bad time, very specifically because of the quality of individuals who are here today and the quality of the culture. You see, again, a more short-sighted uh, person will say, oh, but we have smartphones now. <laughs> they didn't have smartphones in ancient times. Uh, yes, and 80%, uh, I believe, them, I could be off on the number. It's either 65 or 80%, I forget, of uh, internet technology is used for pornography. So is this progress? Well, we have smartphones, but they're being used for base reasons. So thus the quality of behavior, the quality of individuals, the quality of culture and on and on um, has declined over the last several thousand years, certainly since the beginning of the Kali Yuga. What these scriptures also talk about specifically is corruption in government, how governments will be corrupt how individuals who are rulers of society, whether locally or on the national scale or even larger global scale, will be ruling due to their own greed, due to their own avarice, due to their own lust for power, rather than to serve the people. It describes how uh, ethics will increasingly disappear. Ethics will become relative to the point where people won't even understand the difference between right and wrong. For people, uh, for many people, not everyone, of course, but for many people, um, having a lunch and killing a baby will be morally equivalent. <laughs> and on and on. And sadly, we have seen that this is indeed the case. Of course, not for most of us, not for people who are spiritual, not for people who are listening to this right now, I would hope, but for an increasingly large number of people, uh, people have lost the ability to discern between, again, right and wrong, truth and untruth, what is a lie, what is true, um, everyone has their own opinion, 
and every opinion is valid regardless of what it actually leads to, what are the actual moral uh, and virtue consequences of people's opinions, etc. So yes, again, the scriptures talk about this very, very much in depth. Um, again, as far as specifics, oh, like for example, um, you know, that World War II happened or that um, you know, we just had a, a tiny conflict with, with Iran. America had a tiny conflict with Iran. Specificities like that are, you know, not really of great importance. So the scriptures don't go into that degree of specificity. But generally speaking, they do indeed describe what our age is like and what we are to expect. So hopefully that answers the first part. Can you remind me of the uh, second part of the question again? Yes, I was wondering, even though ancient people may have been more advanced, they are still human beings, so it seems that there's still some force that keeps us in the material uh, consciousness, and if you can explain what this force is. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, you are quite correct in this perception actually that there does indeed seem to be some sort of for force that keeps individuals in illusion that keeps individuals uh, tied down let's say to materialism and all of the ethical consequences of materialism <clears throat> so thus greed and hatred etc and that this has been with us for an extremely long time and it truly has been I mean even in um, in better times truthfully and I've said this before in several of my lectures, even when you have a seemingly golden age, it does not mean that quite literally everything is perfect. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have periodically someone who steals from someone else or murder takes place, etc. So there have always been these problems. Now, as far as what this force is, uh, there are two levels of what this force is that seems to keep people under illusion. The first of the first level of this force is metaphysical. The second one is, for lack of a better term, um, let's say political. Really, it goes much deeper than just political. And when I say political, I don't mean in the political party sense. I mean in the sense of, of brute power politics. Let's deal with the first, the first of these, and that is the, the metaphysical aspect. Well, first of all, of course, this begs the question as to why we as living beings even find ourselves here within this material realm to begin with. And when I say material realm, of course, I don't mean simply material realm as a geographical location. But what keeps us in a realm in which we choose the material as opposed to the spiritual? We choose the illusory versus the real. Why is this the case for any of us as individuals? Well, of course, uh, what this is, is what in Sanskrit is called ahankara. This is false ego, but going a little bit deeper than this. It is a false identification. See, people use this term false ego quite a bit uh, today. They'll use the word ego, false ego. But what exactly is wrong with ego? I've had some people attempt to question me on this. Well, what's wrong with ego? They tend to be unfortunately, Satanists or Luciferians who celebrate ego. And this is what I'll explain. Well, this is the difficulty. What we mean by false ego is false identification. In other words, making the mistake of identifying yourself with something that you are not and misidentifying yourself with a reality that is not real. So there are many examples that can be given. So, for example, if a person, let's say, is in the movie theater, 
and they're watching a movie and the movie itself is very engaging it's a very uh, very uh active sort of movie very intense and we're sitting there in the dark to the point where we can't even see our own bodies and we're just focusing on this film and it comes to the point where we begin to think that we are a character in this film to the point of debilitation to the point where we literally forget ourselves and <laughs> you know i don't know if this has ever happened and again it's just an imperfect analogy you can imagine that the movie is over and the lights come up and everyone leaves the theater but there's this one person who's there in this catatonic state where they're convinced that they are the main character of that movie and psychiatrists and doctors have to come and talk to the person uh listen bob your name is bob you're not this hero in the movie you're not one of the avengers are you okay but the person is convinced that they are that person it's a false identification now, you see, I describe this in a funny way because we understand that if we were to witness something like this, we would know, oh, this is a person in crisis. This is some, there's something very wrong with this person. Yet, interestingly, pretty much every living being in the material world is suffering from this exact problem. It's a misidentification of self. That is, rather than identifying with our true self, we're identifying with other things external to ourselves that are temporary that have an effect on us, but that we have taken too seriously. And we are convinced now that this is the true content. These are the true contents of our reality. So thus, this is the nature of ahankara, of this artificial sense of self versus true self. Now, all that being the case, what keeps us in this material world very specifically, according to the scriptures, is that this false ego, this ahankara, once it chooses this path of falsely identifying with something, it is now fed. This illusion is fed by something called maya. Maya is the power of illusion. Now, interestingly, the power of, an, of illusion is a negation. So in other words, it's similar to the example that's given that if you're walking down the street and you see what seems like a snake and you jump back in fear, but then you realize it was just a rope. Well, it was never a snake. Objectively, it never was a snake. Doesn't matter how much you believed it was a snake, it never was a snake. However, for that short period of time that you thought mistakenly that it was a snake, it had a power over you. That negation of reality, that illusion had a power over you that dictated what you were going to do and how you're going to behave and how you're going to think. So it's interesting. This is what's called maya. This is what's called illusion. So this illusory power that comes about due to our false ego, misidentifying our true nature, that is what keeps us enwrapped in materialism and all of the behavioral traits that go along with materialism. Now, this is how, again, as individuals, metaphysically speaking, this is the force that keeps us tied to the material world. Of course, as spiritual people, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? And in what I'm about to say, I'm going to go to the pretty much the very essence of all spirituality and religion and real philosophy. What is the goal of the individual who wishes to make spiritual progress? To state it very simply, they want to rid themselves, they want to free themselves from that illusion by overcoming ahankara, overcoming the false ego. So this is indeed 
the force that keeps us as individuals tied to materialism. That's the first layer. I mentioned that there were two layers. That's the first layer. Now with the second layer, the second layer of necessity, I'm not going to go very deeply into because truthfully, um, it's the second layer we could talk about for not hours, but for days. Uh, the second layer is indeed the fact that within the context very specifically of the Kali Yuga, there indeed are always individuals who choose to keep us in illusion because it fits their agenda. This has been the case for a very long time, and this is not uh, veering into conspiracy theory or anything of the sort. You know, At this point, I think anyone who is not aware of this fact, at least generally, truly has been sleeping. At this point, everyone is aware of the fact that Yes, throughout the history of especially modernity, let's say the last several hundred years, exactly how long is debatable. I, I personally say it goes back to approximately the Enlightenment era, so the so-called Enlightenment era, very, uh, very unfortunate name that they decided to give this era and uh, the opposite of reality. So it goes back to essentially the 1700s, where indeed uh, there have been a corrupt, let's say, elite of uh, elite group of individuals who, of course, are very wealthy, very very powerful, very much behind the scenes. In some cases, we know their names. In most cases, we have never heard of them. We don't know what their names are. And these individuals, through the media, cultural, academic complex that presently exists, they purposefully help us with our illusion. That is, they help to keep us in our illusion. Why do they do this? Why would some people be so nefarious as to want their fellow citizens to be in illusion, to be materialistic, to be uh, monadic little units uh, of, of, uh, of, let's say, uh, economic value and good little consumers? Well, in my question, you can see the answer. It's because it gives them money and power. So indeed, a lot of the materialism and illusion that individuals are facing today has been imposed not merely by self. Again, metaphysically, yes, we have chosen illusion. But unfortunately, this uh, illusory process has also been exacerbated externally as well by individuals who are extremely powerful individuals in society who have chosen to control how our minds operate, what our behaviors are, what our psychological makeup is, what our beliefs are, etc., in order to help themselves and suit their own agenda, an agenda that is both ideological uh, but also quite personal on their part. Again, they literally make money. Many of these people are multi-billionaires, if not trillionaires, and there are indeed trillionaires in the world. And Again, a lot of the manipulation has come from outside of us as well. So to sum this up, we find ourselves materially oriented, having a difficult time transcending materialism, selfishness, etc., all of these debilitating uh, behaviors that we all know that we have. We have a very difficult time transcending this, both due to our own unfortunate choices to surrender to ego on the one hand, so internal, but also externally due to a concerted and purposeful effort on the part of elite individuals who have ruled our much of our world for generations who purposefully keep us in illusion because it suits their interest.
So I hope that answers the question. And as you can probably imagine, that's the 1% nutshell of how deeply we can go into this. Yeah, definitely. I hear you. Um, following up on that is a question about technology, because it seems like uh, capitalism and currency has ruled our minds for so long, especially uh, in the last 50 to 100 years in the West. And it seems to be getting a little bit better from my perspective. People are realizing money isn't the answer, love is the answer. But now technology seems to have taken its place. And I just want to get your view on what's going on with technology and where you think we're headed with it and if it's good for humanity or not. Sure, sure. And that, that is a very important question, actually. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person who has tried to make sense of this and to tackle such a question. Because, yes, technology is omnipresent. It's all around us, uh, regardless of who we are at this point. You know, unless we choose to be a hermit somewhere in, in a cabin deep in a forest, which very often sounds like a very wonderful lifestyle to me, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I actually wouldn't mind living that way. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, personally, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not someone who believes that technology is inherently bad. I don't believe that uh, anything like this, whether it's any sort of technology or any sort of potentially positive sort of creation that human beings can come up with, I don't believe that they're inherently either good or bad, and that's the problem. Um, wh when it comes to technology very specifically, like with any tool, of course, what makes that tool either good or bad is indeed the individual of course this is true for te technology as well so for example i was <laughs> you know somewhat jokingly but at the same time accurately giving that example of how yes everyone is on the internet now the internet oh it's a wonderful thing it's going to bring us all together and the truth of the matter is the vast vast majority of individuals who use the internet whether it's on their smartphones laptop, whatever, they don't use it for good. They use it for trivial, silly, even destructive things. They use it for pornography. They use it uh, to play video games endlessly. They use it for crass entertainment, listening to the most worthless pop entertainment and music imaginable. You know, the, whenever people create a powerful technology, of course, the individuals who are going to make money from from that technology initially of course, market it, and they have a lot of puffery. Well, they'll, where they will claim, oh, this new technology, yes, it's all going to make us uh, scholars, and we're all going to be uh, reading the classics online, and we're going to be learning, we're all going to have PhDs that we're going to all uh, acquire from online universities, and oh, it's going to be wonderful, it's going to bring us together, and we're all going to hold hands and all be singing songs of peace and love together. And of course, it's always nonsense. <laughs> it's always nonsense. It's always just marketing. It's always just puffery. And it's always th these, um, these, this false marketing is, of course, created by individuals who end up becoming multi, multi billionaires by fooling us. Same thing with the Internet. You know, I mean, uh, like so many, I was around, of course, when the Internet first became uh, really publicly used, like around 1995, 96. Same claims were made. And of course, today, no, most most of internet content is garbage, you know? Uh, so again, what does this mean for us today as individuals who are indeed surrounded by such things? What it means is that we have to have self-discipline in using this tool like any tool, you know? 
a car is neutral. A car can take you very safely, very happily uh, to your destination and back, or a car can can result in accidents. It can do so many things. Same thing with any, again, any tool that you can think of. Similarly with the internet, it is something which if we indeed have the sort of self-discipline uh, that is necessary in order to use this very powerful tool responsibly, then yes, we can do tremendous things with the internet and with all technology, whatever the, the type of technology that we're talking about. Uh, for myself, for example, yes, you know, I'm surrounded by technology. I mean, that should be obvious to anyone who watches my videos or anything. Uh, here in our temple, yeah, we have multiple computers. We have multiple, all sorts of camera equipment. equipment. We have everything imaginable. But the thing is, we indeed use it responsibly. We use social media responsibly, et cetera, et cetera. And that is the way that we use it, the way that I use it, is with the absolutely sole purpose of spreading dharma throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say, of course, that that's what everyone has to do. Not everyone is a dharma teacher, but still, everyone should use technology in a responsible, creative, constructive sort of way that brings uh, good to themselves and others rather than harm. So again, technology, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. It's just a tool like a hammer. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can attack someone with a hammer, people do, or you can use the hammer to construct a beautiful house. You know, same thing with all technology. All right. Well, and my... did, did, that, did, that, did that complete, did that um, satisfy the answer or was there something more you wanted to talk about with that? No, no, I just wanted your opinion on the matter. It's a hot topic. <laughs> mm -hmm. All good. Uh, my next question is more philosophical, maybe a bit deep. Uh, but I've been wondering whether the world exists, uh, the planet Earth actually exists on its own accord, or if our individual and collective minds have created this Earth. Mm, that is a deep question, yes. Um, according to pretty much all the ancient literatures, scriptures, and forms of spirituality, actually, yeah, the, the earth uh, exists for her own sake, in the same way that, that each of us have autonomy, you know? I mean, it's not to say, of course, that we're all islands. No, on the contrary. Uh, to think that we're all, again, these monadic units, these islands who just exist uh, for our own selfish purposes. No, that's the opposite of, of the spiritual worldview. But at the same time, we have autonomy, you know, we have self-respect, we have self-dignity, etc. You know, we can't impose our will upon each other, etc. Well, in the same way, uh, the Earth herself uh, exists for her own sake. She's an, uh, an autonomous being. And again, this is how all of the ancients viewed this topic of what is the nature of this Earth planet. Uh, the Earth is a living being. And what that means very specifically is that the external form that we see is indeed her body in the same way that when we look upon each other, we're seeing the physical face, we're seeing the physical body, but that's not the totality of the person. The actual person is that person who's deep within with, with all of the thoughts and beliefs and emotion and will, etc. Well, in the same way, the earth is indeed a living being. Uh, she is indeed a woman. She's a mother. That's why universally she's seen as, as mother, uh, mother earth, etc. But what that means is that indeed, just like all other living beings, she also has a personality. That means she has her own wants, her own desires. That means she has her own concerns. That means that she has things that 
she is in favor of, that she is not in favor of, etc. Now, that being the case, of course, we are all uh, we are all inhabiting the Earth. So, of course, there is an interplay that happens. There's an interrelationship between ourselves and the Earth. And this, too, is something that all of the ancient scriptures talk about, especially the Vedic scriptures. Even though she is an, an autonomous being and a very powerful one, I mean, you can imagine for a being to be so expansive to the point where an entire planet is her body. Yeah, this is a powerful being. But at the same time, of course, we also have our effect upon her as she does upon us. And that effect can be either good or bad. It can be something in which we help to nurture this divine goddess, Bhumi Devi, she is known as in Sanskrit. Uh, we can nurture this divine goddess. We can keep her joyful and happy. Um, we can cooperate with her in a way that is harmonious and wonderful, and that is dharma. Or, or we can choose the opposite. We can choose to be almost an enemy of the earth, which, of course, uh, many people have, and not just recently. People like to think this is a recent thing. No, throughout history, there have been people, of course, who have exploited the earth in one way or another, it's just that we have greater technology now. See, getting back to technology <laughs> mm -hmm. and how technology can be either good or bad. Well, uh, again, there, there are ways in which we can harm the earth. And, of course, that's not something that, uh, that is in our favor or her favor. It's not something that she wants. Uh, so, for example, interestingly, in, again, the Vedic scriptures, specifically many of them, Mahabharata, Srimad, Bhagavatam, almost all the Puranas, it describes how one thing that pains the earth goddess very specifically is the presence, and this is interesting, this is exactly how it's stated, this is the translation, the presence of evil and corrupt rulers <laughs> pains her, and then the wars that they create the wars upon her body that they create. You know, this is something that gives her tremendous pain. And it's interesting that that is specifically mentioned, among a few other things, that whenever there is the presence of corrupt rulers in society, that is rulers who are greedy, who lie, who take bribes, who don't care about their people, but only care about themselves, maybe their family, um, you know, and again, who wage wars of aggression against other rulers, other nations, etc., this specifically is something that uh, very much harms her. I mean, she feels the pain. And to the point where she will eventually do something about it. You know, whether it's in, in the form of herself fighting back or in many cases turning to God and asking for the avatar to come. So, for example, this is why Krishna avatar came uh, 51, 5200 years ago. This is why Krishna came as an avatar was because the spirit of earth, the goddess earth, Bhumi Devi, quite literally prayed uh, for God to appear upon earth and to alleviate her uh, from all of these corrupt rulers and politicians who were there upon her, lying and cheating and creating horrible, horrible mischief and war. So, yes, the earth is definitely her own being, you know, in the same way that other beings are their own being, and we have to respect that. We have to respect their dignity as autonomous beings. But, of course, we affect her and she affects us very much so. And we are meant to live in cooperation with her in such a way that we keep her happy and she keeps us happy. And we have a relationship of love with our Mother Earth. Mm hmm That's interesting. Uh, yeah, often people treat the Earth as if she's not living 
um, I've noticed. So it's it's interesting to get your perspective on that. Maybe we should do more puja to the earth. Absolutely, yes. In fact, there is indeed such a puja. It's called Bhumi Puja, <laughs> actually. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, I don't know if that's what you were alluding to. But yes, in Vedic culture, you uh, you can indeed to do puja, to do a worship ceremony honoring the earth. It's actually called Bhumi Puja. And it's, it's a beautiful ceremony, actually, in which, uh, yes, you do a full puja, meaning that you do offerings, you say sacred mantras, etc., but with the idea of nurturing the earth. Also, there is what is called yagya, these fire ceremonies as well, that you can do very specifically. These are bhumi yagyas, where you do a fire ceremony in order to literally nourish the earth. In the same way that she nourishes us, we give back. We give back to the earth by nourishing her uh, spiritually, spiritually, because, of course, she doesn't need anything material. Rather, it's the spiritual content of our offering that nourishes her. So, yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Wow. Yeah, lately I have been doing my own puja. Uh, recently, I just got into it. It was never something I learned, like in my traditional upbringing. I had to kind of bring it upon myself. Um, so I'm still learning about puja and yagya, um, but I wonder if you believe that human beings should do puja and yagya, or if being in touch with God and trying to live the best with God as possible is enough. What do you think about it? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. That's an important question, actually, because, of course, yeah, you have several different opinions about this. Yeah, some people do indeed believe that, oh, it's more than enough to just exclusively focus on God and nothing else, whereas there are others who almost go in the opposite direction, uh, somewhat more polytheistic, thinking that, uh, oh, yes, it's important to appeal to as many divinities as possible and maybe appeal to God a little bit or maybe not at all. And the, the truth of the matter is the... Uh, Sanatana Dharma, the Vedic tradition, actually has a conclusive teaching upon this, and that is this. Uh, ultimately, of course, and it's interesting. In fact, let me back up just a little bit, because I uh, remember having a conversation about this with a person who considered themselves, themselves to be a polytheist not long ago. It was maybe a few weeks ago. And it's interesting. This is how I tried to explain this to this person. That ultimately, of course, yes, there is God. There is that absolute, you know, whatever you wish to call it. Of philosophical necessity, ultimately, uh, there has to be one. There has to be uh, ekam in Sanskrit. There has to be that one being who is the source of all other things. Otherwise, if you have a multiplicity of divine sources, uh, then what you end up having is, uh, is a divinity that is, let's say, in conflict with itself rather than there being one, one purpose, one source, one being, etc. Um, so that doesn't work. So ultimately, there, ha there has to be one God, one divine being. But that being the case, of course, as long as we indeed acknowledge that, and we don't have any confusion about that, and as long as we understand that, in our spiritual pursuit, of course, why would we want to reach toward anything why would we want to achieve anything other than that highest source of all things that's true on the one hand but on the other hand it is also both important and it is not a contradiction to also understand that there are also many other lesser powerful beings who are beneficent who are good 
who are helpful, who they themselves are servants of that one divine being of God. And why not work in cooperation with these beings? Why not work in cooperation with the gods and goddesses? What in Sanskrit is called the devas and devis, with all the beneficent beings. And there are many strata of them. In fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, we released a video called The Gods and Goddesses of Sanatana Dharma uh, on our YouTube channel, the Dharma Nation channel, where I describe this a little bit. I talk about the various uh, strata of gods and goddesses. There are many beneficent beings. It includes not just what we think of traditionally when we think of gods and goddesses, you know, extremely powerful beings who live for millions of years and for example the sun god or the moon god or indra or vayu or mitra or agni or any of these beings there are also uh very localized beings so for example there are indeed nature spirits tree spirits there is uh, a goddess of a river for example you know there are powerful beings all around us and this is the important thing as long as we have the intelligence and the ability to discern whether they truly are good beings versus just powerful beings but who are evil and there are indeed such beings as long as we absolutely determine that yes this is a good being who is a servant of the divine who is a servant of god and of dharma then of course we should cooperate with these beings and what does cooperation mean well uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, we uh, that we build, uh, I don't know, we uh, build a village together. No. What does it mean to cooperate with a powerful being like this? It means spiritually. It doesn't mean materially. It means spiritually we offer unto them and then they give us their benedictions, whatever their specific benediction is that they have that they can give. You know, so, yes, it is definitely important to uh surrender ultimately to god ultimately to that ultimate divine who is the source even of these lesser gods and goddesses but at the same time we are meant to cooperate with all good beings you see for people who would protest against this no 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 you should only focus on god well do we not cooperate with good human beings of course we do we all do if we find good human beings whether it's a spiritual teacher or someone just doing good in the world we help them we cooperate with them so then what what to speak of beings who are just above human they're more powerful than humans but they're also just as good actually even better of course we should cooperate with them and indeed the best way to do this is getting to the first part of your question yes puja and yagya that is any sort of legitimate authentic traditional ceremonies that help us to commune with these beings that help us to uh, experience these beings and the presence of these beings but more that again will help them give them the nourishment that they need in such a way that they then can give us their benedictions see it it's interesting throughout history of course we know that every ancient culture previous to let's say the Abrahamic cultures which are radically fanatically monotheistic you know um, previous to the to the Abrahamic cultures, every single culture on earth believed in a multiplicity of beings around us, good beings, nature, spirits, gods, goddesses, etc. So the truth of the matter is, the idea of cooperating with such beings is something that's very natural to us. And the reason why we cooperate with them is this is the very simple dynamic. It is indeed cooperation. So what does this mean? 
these beings like us they have their needs they have a need for nutrition they have a, a need for love they have a need for a sense of family etc so understanding that these beings are kind of an extended non-empirical non-physical aspect of our family we in doing yagya and puja we literally give them their nourishment we give them spiritually the type of spiritual energetic food sustenance that they need to themselves then be strong and thrive and thanks to us what do they give us everything everything that we see around us the gods and goddesses these uh munificent beneficent beings they give us rain they give us sunshine they give us uh you know a uh, uh, wonderful soil that we can grow things in you know they give us good fortune etc uh they give us the good positive energies that we need such that we can think in a more transcendent way with a clearer mind etc uh they give us peace upon upon the earth and on and on so it's literally a cooperation in which we give to the gods metaphysically what they need through ritual and then they give to us everything that we need both physical but also metaphysical as well so it's a cooperation that's very much nece- necessary and that bridge between us and the gods is indeed ritual it's puja it's yagya it is abhisheka it is ceremony of various kinds this is why whenever i hear people drone on and this is a very recent thing this is a very new age thing where it's designed to sound sophisticated even though the person saying it is not sophisticated <laughs> uh they'll talk about oh ritualism oh that's just ritualism this made up word as if it has meaning ritualism ritual is something that has been done ever since there have been human beings on this planet and universally historically and for good reason now of course what they kind of mean when they talk about ritualism is doing ritual in an empty way that is doing ritual without understanding what you're doing and without the uh let's say will content that should be there well of course that's silly i mean that's true for anything spiritual if you're if you're pretending to meditate but you're you know you're sitting there with your eyes closed and you're thinking about your taxes and a fight that you had that day and your mind is just going on and on and on well you're not meditating <laughs> you're not meditating uh in, in the same way of course as you're doing ritual you have to be present as you're doing ritual otherwise it's empty but the idea that ritual itself is meaningless no all of our ancestors of almost any people upon the face of the earth would radically disagree with you to your face ritual done the correct way for the right purpose is crucial to spirituality And again, any form of spiritual practice done in an empty way is worthless, whether it's meditation, yoga. I mean, good god, how many people go through the asanas and they're the most materialistic uh self-centered people on earth? We meet them every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the Lululemon the Lululemon crowd, let me just be blunt. They're mm-hmm. the most materialistic people on earth, but they seem to be doing asanas, they can do a headstand very well, but they're empty shells. Well, again, any kind of so-called spiritual practice can be done in an empty meaningless way so have that not be the case whether you're doing meditation or yoga or any form of ritual or any spiritual sadhana practice absolutely f- be fully present 
absolutely do it for the right reason, not to show off, not to increase your ego, do the opposite, to reduce your ego, and to truly commune with the divine in absolute humility. So, yes, ritual is important, as important as meditation, yoga, asanas, or anything else. And we should indeed be doing puja. Thank you for clearing that up. Everything uh, makes much more sense in my mind now about puja, so thank you for that. My pleasure. And my last question has to do with the ego. Um, ever since I became, became spiritual, uh, got into spirituality seriously and started studying Buddhism, the word ego is mentioned on and on and on. And I'm trying to find this within myself. And the only way that I can best describe ego is a collection of behaviors, thoughts, and feelings that may be recurring that are a hindrance to my spiritual progress. And I just want to know if you can define ego from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And you're right. This is one of these, uh, you know, it's it's unfortunate, both yourself and myself having been spiritual people and, you know, on the spiritual scene in the Western world for some time. Of course, we know that there are certain buzzwords that people often repeat without quite understanding what what they mean. And you're right. This is one of those words, ego. Everyone throws this word around uh, without quite understanding exactly what it means. And again, not not to repeat, but a, a little bit of repetition of what I said before, but then I'll go much deeper. Uh, what ego actually is, is indeed this false identification that comes about due to the individual of their own free will. See, this is what's important, is to understand that the initial step of acquiring false ego, it's not something that's imposed upon us. We choose it, actually. The first moment that this false ego arises within the individual, it's something that is chosen by the individual, and that is that rather than choosing to know, understand, and grow in their true self, that is, in that Atman, in that eternal aspect of who they are, rather than doing that, they choose a different path. They choose the path of instead following an artificial self. What it ultimately is, is a choosing of selfishness versus selflessness. It is a choice of choosing self-service versus service toward God and toward others. It is a type of selfishness that occurs where you become self-absorbed rather than self-realized, in other words. And that's the initial, let's say, seed, uh, seed occurrence that happens in the individual when they first begin to acquire this ahankara, this false ego. Now, the other things that you mentioned, the negative traits, behaviors, etc., um, those are all very true. Those are all very much there. That's what we see as a result of false ego. But interestingly, that comes later. <clears throat> that comes a little bit later when the individual, again, first makes that uh, first crucial mistaken choice of choosing the route of selfishness versus selflessness. And as a result of making that choice, of course, what happens? Well, you are in illusion as a result. First comes ahankara, first comes false ego. Again, similar to the example that I gave of that person in the movie theater. You know, first you have that false identification. First you begin to identify with that person on the movie screen. Oh, I am that person. I am the... 
first comes that false identification and then comes the illusion. See, once you think that you are something that you are not, then of course you construct a world around that artificial self. That's the illusion. And that's where then as a result of that, of course, what happens? You behave accordingly. You behave according to that false perception of what you think you are. So again, to use this analogy yet again, because it's a perfect analogy. Let's just say, for example, all right, um, this person is watching the mo uh, some movie, and it's maybe the Avengers. You know, pick a movie that uh, everyone knows. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> let's say it's the it's it's the Avengers, and you really like that Spider-Man character, and you really identify with him. Now you're convinced I am Spider-Man. Now that becomes your reality. You're an illusion. The movie's over. Oh, you're still convinced I am Spider-Man. What then happens? Well, I must behave like Spider-Man. I'm going to try to climb walls. I'm going to pretend that I have webbing shooting out of my out of my hands. Uh, maybe I'll even what? Maybe I'll even make a costume or I'll buy a costume for myself to make me look like Spider-Man. And on and on, and you fall down this rabbit hole of illusion and of false reality. And you're constructing this artificial reality that really has not a thing to do with your true self and who you truly are. And in the meantime, you know, your spouse has, has eventually left you. <laughs> You've lost your job and on and on. So you see how we fall down this rabbit hole where first it begins with false identification, identifying with something that is illusory, that, we're, that we are not. We have nothing really to do with that thing that we think we are. But then, again, the illusion where we begin to construct a false entire reality around that mistaken assumption of identity. And then after that, the behavior and the traits and the characteristics and the actions and the mindset and everything follows after that. Now identifying with this false self and this false reality, I must act accordingly. Because why? If I don't, then that can shatter that false reality that I think mistakenly that I feel so comfortable in right now, even though it's false. So spiritually speaking, this is indeed what, what happens with us. This is why every almost, and I have to emphasize almost, almost every living being who we see around us who we can encounter, whether it's humans, whether it's animals, whether it's quite literally any unit of consciousness that is presently inhabit inhabiting a, a body, a physical body that we can encounter around us. This is why they behave as they do. This is why they identify. This is why the dog is convinced it's a dog. This is why the woman is convinced she's a woman. The man is convinced he's a man. That's why we're convinced we're a certain age, we're a certain uh, anything that we can identify with physically. And of course, what does it mean to have wisdom? What does it mean to truly progress spiritually? It means to reacquaint ourselves with our true self, with our true self. It means that we begin little by little to acknowledge the fact that, well, okay, maybe I'm not Spider-Man. I really tried a hundred times to climb this wall and I just can't do it. I can't stick to this wall no matter what I do. And I guess as if I want to be real with myself, yeah, I'm not really shooting webs. <laughs> I was pretending that I was, but yes, I guess I'm not. Well, in the same way, spiritually, um, it takes courage and it takes discipline and it takes sadhana. It takes spiritual practice. It takes patience. But little by little, we begin to rid ourselves of these various other illusions. See, we laugh, of course, when I give this analogy and I say, oh yes, identifying with Spider-Man, oh, who would do that? 
but you're identifying as a woman or as a man or as a cat or a dog <laughs> or as rich, poor, uh, American, Japanese, uh, Saudi Arabian, anything you can think of, Kazakhstani. I am Kazakhstani. Really? <laughs> is that all that we are is what we identify with all these temporal things that come and go? Or are we actually that being who is there within who, even though everything around us changes, our face changes day to day, our body changes, our geographic location changes. You know, you just moved to a new country. <laughs> People move to new countries. Our geographic location changes, but yet we are us. We are that experiencer, what Patanjali calls the drashtur, that experiencer who is there and who does not change even though everything around us changes. That's the true us. So what is the goal? of all of us spiritually, it's to re-embrace courageously that true self and to let go of the illusion of what I thought I was for so long, but really when I think about it, I know these things are only temporary and they do not express the essence of my being spiritually. You know, our latest fashion or, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. our latest clothing fashion. Oh, yes, we identify with how we dress. I have my own style of, of dressing. I have my own style of how I do my hair. But we know that's not us. We know that in a few years we are probably going to change our style. All, all these temporal things that we so identify with and grab onto and hold onto for dear life because we think there's nothing else. When we realize that in actuality, no, there is an infinity of more else there is God there is our true self then we have the ability to in a healthy way begin to let go of the illusion and to embrace the reality of who we are spiritually and that is the goal of all legitimate spirituality so Excellent. does that answer the question yeah it does it does I uh, when you're getting rid of the ego the real ego, <laughs> it can be quite uncomfortable because you're shining a light on what is false. And I think more of us do need the courage to be able to to do that because it does take courage, especially if you're new to spirituality or if you've just discovered uh, that there is something deeper, more meaningful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And this is why this is something I always emphasize with people, because, again, you know, it may seem that I speak a, a lot about about new age sort of mentality. And there's a reason why. It's because, unfortunately, it has ruined the actual spiritual experience for so many millions of people. It is important for people to understand this point that I'm about to make. And I, I always make this extremely clear to anyone who claims that they are sincere in their spiritual pursuit. Spiritual pursuit is not easy. Nothing of value is. We've seen that. And yet, you know, due to this American uh, consumerism where we have the idea that, oh, if I just pay enough money and if I just desire it enough, I should be able to have anything that I want, even the most valuable of things in an instant. You know, I mean, that's that's selfish materialism itself. But unfortunately, we translate that to spirituality and people think, oh, if I just uh, if I just wish it enough, I'll have enlightenment and I'll know God you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this flies in the face of, again, every single legitimate spiritual tradition, 
on Earth and throughout the totality of human history. No, if we truly want to know ourselves spiritually and if we want to know that which is the highest, it's going to be a path that's going to challenge us and we must not be afraid of that. It's going to be a path where we need patience, infinite patience. It's going to be a path where we need self-discipline. It's going to be a path where we have to be prepared to develop ourselves in every way. That means intellectually, philosophically, spiritually. We need to perfect ourselves in our mind and in our heart. We need to build a compassion the likes of which we can scarcely even imagine now, to the point where we have compassion for all sentient beings. And this is not something that comes about overnight due to wishful thinking. It's something that comes about slowly with our own determined effort, patience, self-discipline, and a true yearning to have this. You know, a spiritual person has to truly want to gain enlightenment more than they want anything on earth, more than they want fame, more than they want glory, more than they want material acquisitions, more than they want money, more than they want anything of this world. And when you have that sort of determination, yes, you will have enlightenment. Yes. Uh, definitely, there's no quick fix, and it's all about training, and it's very hard work. It's very hard work. You do need to persevere, and uh, like I have fallen, everybody on the spiritual path will fall down. That's a guarantee. But if you want enlightenment, you will strive until you obtain it, until the end. Absolutely. Yeah, the spiritual path, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a zigzag. You know, you have wonderful success one day, a seeming failure the next day. What ultimately is the greatest success is that you never give up regardless of anything. Mm -hmm. Even if you have those bad days where you're just not feeling it, meditation, sitting down, doing your meditation, it's hard. I just don't feel like it today. The great, the greatest success is the fact that you did it nonetheless. And that's what's important. That's what's important. That's why sincerity is our vehicle. Have sincerity, do what you need to do, and yes, we will, we will have enlightenment. We will know ourselves, we will know God. It's guaranteed, as long as we are sincere and we do what's necessary. Lovely. That's perfect. Thank you for everything you've shared with us. Again, a very philosophical and practical interview. I hope my listeners will enjoy this thoroughly. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Shannon, for, for arranging this and doing this interview with me. I truly appreciate it. This is our second interview, and uh, both have been absolutely wonderful. Both have been just great in every way. You're a wonderful interviewer. So thank you so much. Thanks again, and yeah, I'll give you a shout when it's out. Very good. Wonderful. Well, please take care of yourself, and namaste. Namaste always. Thank you so much.